Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Uh, lovely to see you all here and to be with you on the podcast. Um, by the way, we had our year anniversary of the podcast this past week, which is so exciting. So those of you who have been joining us on uh, on the podcast for an entire year, it, uh, you, you've done a good job. So thank you for, <laughs> thank you for listening. Um, I had coffee with Sherry Cohn this morning and I always, I feel like when I do these podcasts, I think specifically of the people who have told me that they listen, and Sherry Cohn is one of those people. So I feel like I do this podcast uh, for Sherry. Um, so as those of you on Zoom can tell, Rabbi Machapiro is not here this week, but Jackie Honig is here. And Jackie is one of our rabbinic residents, newly minted uh, this month in, in our residency program and, uh, and made official by her first uh, paycheck, I heard. So... She officially works here. Um, and uh, what? Did someone say anything? Say anything. Oh. And um, so, so Jackie's going to take the role of Rabbi Shapiro in terms of taking us through this class uh, with me as a chavruta and also uh, as someone to discuss the Parsha with. So I'll let Jackie take over and tell us a little bit about the Parsha, and then we will go to our Kushiot as normal. Awesome. Hi, everyone. So this week we are in Parsha Ki Tetze, which I feel like I've talked about so much this week, which has been wonderful and lovely. There's been a lot of living and sitting in this Parsha. So the Parsha opens with, it opens, quote, with when you take the field against your enemies. And so it's talking about the spoils of war. And so it opens with talking about a captive woman. If you see a beautiful woman and you want to take her as your wife, and it gives you all of the rules of how to do that, um, and also how to send her away, should you decide this is no longer the woman you want. So this part is really interesting to back up for one minute, sorry, that there are was the number 74? Was it 74 meets vote that are in this week's Parsha? It is just like bam, 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 back to back to back to back, all of these laws. It just like it opens with this with this law of the of the captive wife, and it continues with a man who has two wives, one loved and one unloved. Just in case anyone's got got two wives sitting around, you love one, you don't love the other, but it talks about if they have children and the birth rate that it has to go to the to the correct son, regardless if his mother is beloved in your eyes or not. And then and then the wayward son. And what do you do with a son who will not listen to the voice of his mother, the voice of his father? The punchline is you take him out and you stone him. You can um, read my and, Jewish journal article if you would like to hear more on that topic. <laughs> so and then the last thing we see before the piece we're gonna talk about is if someone is guilty of a capital offense and put to death, you impale him on a stake and you must not let him remain there overnight. So you execute the, you execute him, you carry out the punishment and then you must remove him and you must bury him. And then we get to the verses we're going to talk about today, which I can share my screen. I know how to do that. Can everyone see it? It is impressive. I just want to point out, not that, um, 
not that I'm asking for anything different. It is impressive that seven minutes into this class, we're actually looking at text as opposed to like Rabbi Shapiro telling us some crazy story about something that happened this week. And I just want to point out that we're going to get a lot of material in because we're already in the text seven minutes in. And that is maybe the first time that we've ever done that. So thank you, Jackie, for keeping us on track. Go ahead. I'm happy to tell you, I'm sure something crazy happened in my week. I don't remember my week, but I'm sure there was something crazy. If we'd like to, if, if, if someone wants halfway through, we can interrupt for story time if we need to. Great, great. Um, so this week we're looking at Dvarim 22, one through three. If you see your fellow's ox or sheep gone astray, do not ignore it. You must take it back to your fellow. If your fellow does not live near you or you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home and it shall remain with you until your fellow claims it. Then you shall give it back to him. You shall do the same with his ass. You shall do the same with his garment. And so too, you shall do with anything that your fellow loses and you find you must not remain indifferent. So in, can I, can I share why I picked it? Yeah, yeah, of course. Go ahead. Okay. I was like, I don't know what the, I don't know what the, I'm going to stop. You, you do you, as we say. Great. Um, I, so I picked these verses we were talking earlier in the week. And I think what's stood out to me really, especially in this moment we live in is the fact that in three verses, twice it tells us don't ignore it. You must not look away. That really sort of spoke to me in this week, in this moment, that here our Torah that does not mince words and does not use extra words is telling us this really important thing twice, very quickly. Great. Anything, do you want to share anything else before we move on? No. Okay. Um, let, I am now. Quick question, quick question. I remember that when we were learning in Marlon's class, we were learning something about this kind of stuff. And we were, I remember we were talking specifically about like Talasim and if someone leaves like their tallest bag at shul, whether we should take it or leave it in its spot. I am so, my mouse is frozen, so I can't see any of you, but I am so um, touched and, and kind of uh, humbled by the fact that Marlon taught you that because what I was going to share about these verses is that uh, the first Easter sermon that I gave at Beth um, my first high holidays, I should say, it wasn't my first Easter sermon, um, was about, losing losing objects uh and therefore losing loved ones and what does it mean uh to to lose someone and to say sorry for your loss and i shared the story of my father losing his tallis at temple Bethan. uh and marlon dorf is a really special person to me so i love that she used that as her example also um but yes yeah, so this is we're gonna get i'm sure jackie will mention it because she mentioned it to me so i'm sure it will come up in her uh explanations that when you when you get into the Gemara, there are some pieces of Torah that very um, very closely connect to pieces of rabbinic um, teaching in our Gemara later on. First, probably in the Mishnah and then the Gemara, and uh, and this is one of them. It's called Elu Mitziot, and it's the it's a it's a whole section, not a tractate. I mean, the tractate is Bava Metzia, but the whole tractate isn't about this, but there's a very, very large section that talks about finding lost objects and returning lost objects. Um, so that's probably what you're thinking about, and that's probably what Marlon was referring to. Um, and in the sermon that I gave, that was that was the way that I was looking at it as well in terms of my dad's tallest. Um, so, okay, so I'm going to share my screen, yeah, which is what... Sorry, Renee, go ahead. Oh, you're, never mind. Okay. Um, 
which is what stopped my mouse last time. So hopefully this works. Hold on one second. Okay. Can you all see this? Yes. Nancy is nodding. So if Nancy can see it, I assume everybody else can. Okay. Um, oh, wait. I meant to make it a little bit smaller, not larger. So you can see all three at the same time. So again, as Jackie said, those of you on the podcast, we're at Deuteronomy 22, one through three. So any kushiote on these, on these verses, uh, sometimes we go through the Hebrew. So if you would like to look at the Hebrew and come up with uh, um, kushiot on these pieces uh, in Hebrew, feel free to do so. But any, any questions, any questions about these, these three verses that we have here? No question. Yeah, Karen. If you don't know where they live and you don't know who they are, yeah. how are you going to get it back to them? Great. Great question. We will talk about that. Great question. And I was just also thinking I live in Beverly Wood. Uh-huh. And, you know, there's this Beverly, you know, there's this website that shares information about things. And they're always talking about a lost dog, a cat, a bit, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. But if you don't know where they live, what happens if you, God forbid, should die or it's 50 years later? Yeah, great question. Like, what, what, at what point does this, does this have, like, a time limit or boundaries around if you're too far away, is it still your job to return? It doesn't come up in the Torah. It comes up a little bit in the commentaries, though I didn't focus on that as much, but definitely comes up in Bava Metzia and in Elu Metziot about what the the laws around returning objects um, are and how you go about making sure that you're doing due diligence to return things, but also not becoming a crazy person to have to return things if you don't know the person or if they're far away. Uh, Ryan. So I'm curious about this word fellow. Um, it looks like the Hebrew is achich, which I guess would be your brother. Mm-hmm. So I'm mainly curious about like, to whom does this apply? Does this only apply to fellow Israelites? Does this apply to strangers in the land? Great. So you, you bring up a really interesting point. Um, and I'm trying to move you all so I can see the Hebrew. So it says, lo karov And if your brother, your comrade, your fellow is not close to you, right? And the rabbis have a really good time talking about, does that mean in terms of relationship or does that mean in terms of distance? Like what Karen was getting at, because achicha, as you, as you pointed out, Ryan, is there is a, is a word that can mean brother in terms of, you know, biologically we are related through DNA. It could also mean someone who is close to you as a friend, right? You feel close to them like a brother. It could also mean a Jew. So what are we referring to here in terms of your fellow, your brother, your comrade, right? Is this someone who is just close to you in relationship or close to you in distance or somebody that you actually have connection to, again, whether biological or, um, or, you know, relationally? Great question. Joanna. So just to drill down a little bit on something that... Um, By the way, keep talking. I'm just going to walk to to close something like that, but keep talking. I'm listening to you. 
<laughs> uh, just to drill down a little bit on something that Jackie was saying, and maybe to get a little more specific about it. Um, and, you know, the idea that the Torah doesn't waste words, it's a very sort of concise, yeah. precise book. Yeah. So wouldn't the third verse have covered it all? Like, why do we need the earlier two verses? Um, and is there anything about the specific examples that are brought forward? Or those are just random examples, and it could have been something else Um, and then um, along the same lines in the first verse why do we need the words um, do not ignore it right if you find your fellow sheep gone astray you must take it back to your fellow why also do not ignore great so some of the things I think that I brought, and if I didn't bring them, I'll at least refer to them, have to do with the kind of redundancy that you are pointing out here. And then the second piece, the do not ignore it, I think actually has, according to the rabbis, a lot to do with Karen's question of distance, right? At what point do you not ignore something that is in front of you? Is it when it has a symbol on it so you know potentially how to go about returning it right a dog that has a tag you you might have a better sense of how to return that dog even if you're not successful you'll have a better sense of how to return that dog than if the dog didn't have a tag um so do you have do you do you have the responsibility to not ignore it if it will be easy for you if it will be close to you right at what point does this ignoring Um, also have parameters, right? Like we were talking about before, what does it mean that we need to be reminded not to ignore something? And just to bring Rabbi Shapiro into this space for a second, um, not physically, though, as you all know, that could also happen. Um, the, The fact that it mentions do not ignore it makes us think that people were ignoring it, right? It wouldn't have said that had people always remembered and always done uh, this, this, um, this uh, exchange is the word that's coming to mind, this like, this mitzvah of making sure to return something, right? But if it says do not ignore it, that means that people weren't always doing it. And so we needed to remind people to make sure they did it. So lots of Lots of stuff there, Joanna, and feel free to bring it up if we if we don't get to any of the elements um, through the commentaries. Denise and then Renee, and then um, we'll go on if anybody doesn't have any questions. So I was going to just ask if um, where it says, you know, your fellow, like somebody close to you, but maybe it's not, is it trying to tell us that that's how we need to think about it? That we need to think about, okay, so for example, I had this assistant several years ago. She's an African-American girl. She had a very hard life. She was really getting herself together. But like when she was a kid, they lived in the car. And she didn't have a car yet of her own. She eventually got one. Um, She was a student working through school, blah, blah, blah. And one day she comes to work and she's got this new iPhone. And she's all excited. I was like, wow, where'd you get that? Oh, I found it at the bus stop. We mm-hmm. found it at the bus stop, you know, <laughs> and and I tried to tell her like you need to give it back, you need to return it, you need to go to the police and you know have them track it, whatever. And she wouldn't do it. She wanted to give her old phone to her sister and keep this one. And I was like, Dominique, you know, you, the bus stop near your house. Yeah, I said, well, that was probably another black person who lived in your neighborhood, and like you, they didn't have a car, which is why they were at the bus stop. And you know what it feels like to lose your phone. Why are you not crying for that person? 
you know, and she, she didn't get it, but I think this is what it's telling us. You have to think about everybody as if there's someone close to you. You can't just like, oh, I don't know them, so I don't care. You have to care. They have to be part of your heart. I think that's really beautiful. Um, I think that is definitely a drosh on this. Um, I think that that there are certain ways in which the Torah wants us to have compassion for people. And then there's also certain ways that the Torah just wants us to return things. Um, and, and I think that there might be a little bit more practicality in this than, than the, than the beautiful example that you're sharing. Um, I think that also, and this is where the Gemara comes in a little bit more. Uh, I think there are also ways in which your story is a prime example of someone who's in need of something and find something that they are in need of. And what are the laws around that? Um, and how do you, and I don't think that race actually matters in that particular case. Like, right. How does it, how does it matter? How, how does it, um, how does it benefit you, but also take away, as you said, another person potentially, or is it something that's not taking away from someone else? And because it's benefiting you, it's, uh, you know, it's a blessing that you found it. So there's, there's all that you have to weigh those things based on what the actual object is, uh, what it could be taking away from someone else or, and what it could be doing to benefit you. Um, so I think, Again, I think it's a beautiful drosh. I don't think that's exactly what the Torah is getting at here. I think it's more practical in terms of like you found a thing, you should return a thing. Uh, but I love the idea of thinking more deeply about the person behind the thing uh, as well. Okay, Renee. I think there's also an element of um, uh, bystander bias, you know, that if we see if we see somebody's ox um, thinking that, oh, well, why should I return it? Somebody yeah. else, somebody else is going to return it. Great. Great. Yes. So that's definitely, um, definitely something that, that comes up quite a bit. And I use this example a lot that, uh, that when I was working at Camper Ma in Ojai one summer, uh, they decided that they were going to hire many more staff than they actually needed. And it ended up being a much more difficult summer on the staff because when there are many people who you think are doing the job, you yourself decide, I don't need to do that job, right? If there are eight counselors in a tent with 16 kids, you're always going to assume someone else is doing the something and you can take a nap. Well, if everybody thinks that everybody can take a nap, then no one's taking care of the kids. So there, there is definitely that element of responsibility of even if even if you think someone else might be doing this, it is a mitzvah on you if you see that animal to make sure that you do the returning or get it to someone who can help you with that return. Right. And especially if it has an identifiable name or label, like what, what Karen was saying with the dog and the tag. If there's a dog yeah. tag on the dog, you know, it's, it behooves you to call the name that's called the number that's on there. Right. And that's what kind of we were talking about in Marlon's class with the tallest. Like if you know that the tallest, if somebody has their name on the tallest, that versus not having their name. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's also a depend on value. We're also not going to get into this. I don't think unless Jackie brought it Um, from, from Baba Metzia, right. When we talk about the different value of something, right. If, if something is very valuable to, well, you, you would think it would be very valuable to a person. 
what are the lengths that you go to return that something as opposed to you find a dollar bill on the street. You're not going to wonder how many people walk down the street. You're just going to keep the dollar bill. Maybe you'll give it to Sadaka because it's not really yours, but you're going to keep the dollar bill. You're not going to try to find the one person who dropped the dollar bill. Everyone's going to say, I dropped the dollar bill. So just keep it. But if it's something that you've dropped, like a talis, they also use the um, example of a Torah and Baba Metzia, right? If you've dropped something that is, or lost something, doesn't have to be dropped. If you've lost something and it has a sign on it, or you know that it's dear to somebody, or you know where it might have come from. So a talis is a really good example in terms of a sanctuary, right? We keep every talus that is left here because we assume people will come back and want their talus. Uh, and it's not something that we expect people to just like give up on. We expect them to want to come back and find it. So uh, those are all things that if we ever study this Gemara, which I'm happy to, uh, you would see in, in the original. Yeah, Karen. Just a, a small story. Yeah. Everybody in my, do we all have Maxorim? I don't know how. To, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, and one Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or something, Michael's book disappeared with his name in it. He in shul, and it was gone. Yeah. And he was a crazed human. The following year, I guess, Diane opens up the moxer that happened to be in the pew. Yeah. Michael's moxer. Wow. Just saying, but how distressed he was. Yes. With his name in it. It's like, you know, you just, in shul. I mean, who yes. takes something that belongs to something? Yeah, and especially when it's something that is, that has sentimental value. Like the story with my dad's talis was that that was the talis that he was married under. And he couldn't imagine what it was going to be like to have another talis that was going to mean that much to him. Uh, he subsequently bought a talis because he needed one to, to, um, to daven with even when that one was lost. But it never will mean as much to him as the fact that he then found this talis that he got married under and was a special, a special garment for him. Um, okay, Jackie, I'm going to let you go first because I've now spoken a lot. So um, feel free to share whatever text you would like to start with. And, uh, and sometimes we get to other texts of either yours or mine. And sometimes we just have a great conversation on that text. So we'll see where it takes us, but feel free to go first. Great. Um, I'm also just, I'm like thinking on this because a couple years ago we had pre-convention for USY for international convention and one of the teens lost her talit somewhere at Beth Am that has like still not been recovered to this day. And so it's just funny as we're like having this conversation. It could like, be in Cheryl's thing. office where all of the talitot are that people <laughs> have left. So you can look Maybe. the next time you're here. I will go check again. It's, oh my God, it was a whole thing, but that's like just what I'm thinking about as I'm scrolling. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with the, I'm going to start, no, I'm going to start with something small and we'll see. I'm, so it was interesting. I guess I didn't bring it in the end, but there was something, someone said something, but I'm going to share this one. Sorry. I, I got more sleep than Rabbi Shatz, but I did not. (laughs) I get this much. Um, It's the season, ladies and gentlemen, tis the season. Also, sorry if my computer just moved. Um, share screen. There we go. Partial class. There we go. Can everyone see this? Uh, yes. 
Is there a way to matter. close the Adobe export PDF part though? So it can be a little bit bigger. Just um, like the arrow uh, 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 down, 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 down. That the arrow right there. Yep. Yep. I'm going to zoom in too. Okay. Okay. So I think this spoke to sort of the question that someone asked, but I thought it was interesting. You asked this or you brought this? No, I just brought this one too. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm glad that this happens with you and not just with Rabbi Shapiro. This makes me feel very good. Okay, continue. Go ahead. <laughs> so to the question, I think somebody asked. Um, so I brought this. I thought it was interesting and you blithely ignore or hide from them. You must not ignore their plate. The examples chosen by the Torah are animals that are too big for you to be able to claim that you overlooked them as their owners hid them. So I really enjoyed this. First of all, just like I sometimes really enjoy when, when they give such a simple answer to the question, like, why is this the example used? Cause you can't not see an ox. It's not like they used a mouse or a Guinea pig or a pebble or a lemon or a cup of coffee. Like they picked, like it, it's giving us something so simple that the Torah says they picked an ox because you can't not have seen an ox meandering down the road where it doesn't belong. So I just sort of enjoyed that. Hey, that this is like what the answer gives. And also that like, this isn't even Rashi on it. Like Rashi gives something else on it, that this is like an additional layer. Rashi normally gives us the simple answer and it took an extra layer to get to. The Torah picked it because they're so big. Great. Yeah, I, I mean, I th- does anybody have any comments on this? This was actually the first commentary that I that I began to think about, oh, so what could it also mean to lose to lose a something, right? What is that? Why is the Torah bringing this? If if we're being told by Chizkuni that the reason that a certain animal was used was because of its size, then it seems to be that we're just, we're using an exaggeration to, to understand a point, right? Which is, if you lose something, you shouldn't ignore it, no matter how big it is. But definitely if something is, hitting you in the face as being lost, you shouldn't ignore it. And that's what pushed me actually into the, the, my own kushiot around. So what does it mean that something went astray or something was lost, right? Is it that the ox literally just took off and walked away? Or is it that you, you dropped something? Like I, I realized this morning when I was at coffee with Sherry Cohn that I have no idea where my credit card is, which I've never done before in my entire life. So I didn't know how to cancel a credit card, which I did this morning. Um, but but I, where did it go? I have no idea. And I'm sure I'm going to find it now that I canceled it, which is going to be annoying. Um, but it's that kind of thing, right? About like, what does it mean that something went lost, which is what my, my Yisker sermon actually was all about. But what does it mean that that an ox went lost or a phone was left at a bus stop, right? Does the person just assume that they're going to have other nice people return it to them? Have they given up on it? There's a word in, in, uh, in Hebrew that we use that says yeush. You like, you've... Um, You've given it over that you've decided now that you have no ownership over it. Um, so it's, it's someone else's, right? I lost it. I don't know where it is. I canceled my credit card because if someone else has it, they're going to try to use it because I've relinquished all ownership over it. So I think what Hiskuni is saying is like, you can't do that so easily with a very large animal that's standing, you know, in your front yard. 
I definitely forgot about the word yeesh. I didn't bring it in any of today's sex and you say it and I'm like thrown back to like sitting and learning this piece of Gamara for the first time. This was, I was telling Jackie, this was the first piece of Gamara that I ever learned in rabbinical school. Uh, so it's one that very much so sticks in my head in terms of vocabulary and grammar and how to read a Gamara. Um, Jackie, you want to do another one? And then, and then I'll, oh yes, Gary, you have a question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my question is, I have no problem with an ox. I yeah. haven't had an ox around for a while, but I sure. sure if you have one ox, you may have two oxen. Your neighbors may have one ox. Oxen. Yeah. Um, the question is, how do you identify that it's your ox? I mean, from the right. standpoint, I mean, from, from far, but you have a, you put a, uh, you kind a of brand. brand on it and things like that. But yeah, yeah. It's a great question. So that goes back to these symbols that the Gemara talks about, right? How do you know that it's your ox or how do you know that it's your talus, right? Does it have your name on it? Does it have a brand on it? If it's an animal, does it have sometimes animals have like piercings on their ears to know if it's if it's yours or if it's someone else's or numbers sometimes branded on their tush? Um so, you know, how do you, how do you know that it belongs to you? You can also do it with something that's not as, uh, uh, I don't know, demarcated like a tag. You can do it also based on like a blemish or I know that oh. my ox has three white feet and one black hoof, right? Or I know that my ox walks with a limp or I know that my ox doesn't like to eat apples. So try to feed it an apple. And if it doesn't eat it, then that must be my ox. So it's not always that there's an actual sign. Sometimes it's that you, you know, things about the, especially if it's alive, something, you know, something about that thing that you can then get at if it's yours or not. I I'm sure you've seen like TV shows or, or movies where like the parent trap, for example, where there's twins and they switch places and how do you know this one, this one, or this one, that one. And you try to get them to show their little, their little uniqueness come out so that you know who's who. So that's the same kind of thing with an animal, a little bit different with an object, but same thing with an animal. Jackie, you want to add another text before I do one? Yeah. So something else totally unrelated. Well, I mean, it's all related to the Parsha, but unrelated that I brought is I did bring a piece of Mishnah. So I didn't. So the Mishnah in this chapter opens talking about what, what you keep and what you return. And like, does it like Rabbi Chatz was talking about? Does it have a mark? Does it, is it distinguishable? Is it, my favorite is it talks about bread and like homemade bread versus like bakery bread and that you were, you don't have to return bakery bread because it all looks the same. Whereas homemade bread, you like know whose it is. And I imagine some world where everybody's bread looked a little bit different. Uh, and so what I did bring is a piece of Mishnah about how do you treat this object once you have it that I thought was really interesting that the, that the Gemara, that the Mishnah, excuse me, the Mishnah is concerned, not just that you return it, but how you treat this object while you are its possessor and guardian. So this comes out of the Mishnah. If one found scrolls, he reads them once in 30 days in order to ventilate them and prevent mold. And if he does not know how to read, he rolls and unrolls them in order to ventilate them but he shall not study passages in them for the first time as he would leave the scroll exposed to the air for a lengthy period, thereby causing damage. And another person shall not read the scroll with him as each might pull it closer to improve his vantage point, which could cause the scroll to tear. So all these rules, just about a scroll, 
Then it moves on. If one found a garment, he shakes it once in 30 days and he spreads it for its sake to ventilate it, but he may not use it as a decoration for his own prestige. So you can't put on someone else's fancy suit that you found sitting, but you do have to take care of it. You have to, I just imagine him like shaking it out, this like aggressive, yeah. aggressive, dusty shaking. Like you would shake like a carpet. Um, if one found silver vessels or copper vessels, he may use them for his own sake to prevent tarnish and rust, but he may not use them to the extent that he will erode them. If he finds gold vessels or glass vessels, which are not ruined by neglect, he may not touch them until Elijah will come and identify the owner. Um, I think this speaks a little bit to Karen's question about sort of a statute of limitations. This It's interesting that the English translation adds Elijah identifies the owner because when I learned this for the first time, so if so in Safaria, this comes off of Safaria, it bolds the words that are actually from the Mishnah and then the non-bolded words are added in to help with understanding. And so when I learned this for the first time, I thought this was like, don't touch it till Mashiach comes. Like you absolutely never, ever are allowed to touch this thing that isn't yours. This makes a little bit more sense. Um, and one more piece of a person found a sack or a basket or any item that it is not his typical manner to take and carry because it is beneath his dignity. He shall not take it as one need not demean himself in order to return a lost item. So that comes up a lot. Um, it's a slightly different, but I really love this, that you have to take the item and you have to care for it. There's a whole nother section, which is more complex. And I don't know enough about animal care to do it, but there's a whole section about if you find an animal and you can, you feed it, can you use it and wages and this whole thing, but the mission is really concerned. You can't just take this item and stick it in your dusty garage and let it grow cobwebs and be like, well, I took your blah, blah, blah. I took your scroll off the street seems like your problem now you really have to be a guardian of this object that you know belongs to someone else yeah it's such a beautiful mission i also really love this mission because it also shows that you don't just find a something and need to return a something you also need to care for a something um in any which way that that needs to be done and then it becomes yours right so anything that you've lost you then now you you now care for as if the other person was able to care for it if they knew where it was, which I think is just such a, it's a beautiful way of thinking. If we're going to go into the metaphor of losing a, a loved one, right, that you, that you now have the responsibility to take care of the memory of the person who you've learned of as being lost uh, in order to help support and care for the person who is missing that um missing that loved one as if they were, as if they were um, the owner, right? Obviously not of the person, but of the memories themselves. Uh, yeah, I love that. I've never thought about it in that, in that but way. What if you don't know how to care? Like I'm thinking just in terms of the scroll, the other stuff are kind of not such a big deal. If you don't shake a cloth, it's not going to, you know, nothing horrible is going to happen to it. But if you find, happen to find a scroll and you don't know how to care for, for that scroll to prevent it from uh, disintegrating or whatever, then what? So then I think you, what this is. Are you Jackie, obligated to find a rabbi to tell you what to do with it? No, I don't think Jackie can say more about this if she wishes, but I think it's a pretty simple answer in that what it's basically telling, it's actually the same as the laws of kashrut. The way that you take care of something is the way that you use it, right? Same with kashrut, which is the way that you kosher something is the way that you use it. So if you were to find an ox on the street, 
you would use it to do the work in your field, just like another person would be using that ox. Same with if you found a book, right? A book in today, in modern day, might just sit nicely on a shelf indoors and be totally fine and not need to be opened every single day. So if that's, if you find a book and you're waiting for its owner to come back, you just need to make sure that you put it on a shelf and you don't leave it, you know, on your front doorstep or leave it out with the elements, you know, like you make sure that you take care of it, like you would take care of your books. So it's not, it's not such, you know, um, brain surgery to have to figure out how to take care of the thing. It's mostly just saying, if you were to own a mug and you find someone's mug, don't just keep it in the cabinet, use it like you would use a mug that's yours. Drink coffee Use a scroll. So they're saying use the scroll. Yeah, read from, I mean, when they say scroll, they don't mean like Torah, right? Like anything that was written in those days was a scroll. So you would just read from it and you would, you would use it as, they're basically telling you to not, not be scared of the thing that you are now in possession of just because you don't think it's yours, right? You should use it as if you're the owner. So if you find a thing, you use it like you would use it if it was yours to begin with. Is that so that it doesn't, it's not forgotten yeah or ruined right because some some things if you don't use them enough or um even with garments if you hang them for too long without wearing them right the hanger hanger ends up putting a crease in in the garment same kind of thing that you would want to take care of this garment so that when you return it it's in the condition that it was found or better yes yes yeah Jackie, did you want to add anything to that? I kind of hijacked the answer. You're fine. No, I was just thinking, it's funny because I I think about, I often try to think about like, what does this mean for my life today? And I imagine like finding like a, not that one loses a coffee maker, but like I wouldn't know what to do with a coffee. I don't drink coffee. Um, It's actually funny that you say that. My brother was in law school at Stanford when I was in rabbi in Northern California and Someone didn't lose, but someone put outside their apartment a coffee maker. And I did not have a coffee maker because I had a coffee maker at my office. I didn't need one at home. But when my brother and sister-in-law would come and stay with me, they would want to make coffee. And so my brother saw it outside and, and cleaned it and brought it to my house. And now that's the coffee maker I have. So sometimes you can lose a coffee maker. But arguably that was that that owner had yeah, they put it out on the curb. It was done. I hope so. It would help it helps me to think that that's the case. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so but I but like I think in the ancient days there were like six types of objects. You either had a scroll or a cup or a bowl or a fork. And and so it's a little bit you would have I imagine you would have known how to use the thing. Yeah. Because there were only so many things as opposed to our modern day where you, I always also imagine like walking into someone's kitchen when you like open that you're like looking for a knife in someone else's kitchen and you open it, you pull some like weird kitchen gadget out and you're like, what is this? And it's like a, you know, mm-hmm. last time I did that was a, was an avocado thing. You like cut it and it's a whole thing. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, fufu coffee maker with pots. <laughs> yeah, Renee just said that's probably what the other people got. That they got a fancy coffee maker with pods, and so I got the you know regular coffee maker. But Dale Schatz would tell you that pods are not real coffee, and that you should grind your own beans, and that you should drip your coffee 
and that's real does, coffee. So does he have like a Chemex? Does he have like really nice? Like he doesn't really because nice he's been doing this since before the Chemex was a thing, but he has a filter system and it, it's a whole, it's, it's a whole thing. I was telling the person who I went to coffee with this. Oh, I told you all. I, I was telling Sherry that this morning that on our way to, on our way to school every morning, my dad, Dale, who I just mentioned a second ago, my dad would hand each of us a coffee bean, like a raw coffee bean, um, because the smell was always in the house right before we left because he ground his own beans every morning and we liked the taste. So on our way to school, we each got a coffee bean in our hand and now we all drink coffee. But um, did but you like was- chew it? Like you just like hung out with a cup? Co- like, did you name it? Did you hang out with it? Did you like? No, you eat it. Like you eat a co- chocolate oh. covered coffee bean. It was just not chocolate covered. It was just Got coffee bean. Anyway, okay, this is very off topic. So I'm gonna bring it. <laughs> we're making we're making up for for earlier. We're making up for Rabbi Shapiro. Yeah, yeah. Although I it was my fault this time, which it usually is not. <laughs> um, okay, so I'll have you. Uh, oh, stop, have you stop sharing your screen, and I'll share. So, um, kind of along these lines of you know what does it mean for us today? Um. Okay. So here is, I'm just going to move you all a little bit. Here's the tour roof. Sorry, I have the hiccup. So just give me a second. Um, it says, and if your brother is not near you, right? Someone asked, Ryan first asked like the, the word, right? what does it mean to be your brother? And then I mentioned that if it could be proximity, it could be in terms of relationship. I mean, it says here that you are supposed to keep these belongings safe um, by bringing them into your house, right? And I just wanted to bring this just to kind of reiterate the point that I had made to Renee just a few seconds ago. You don't, you don't like bring them to your porch knowing that someone might see them and say, oh, that's mine. I'll go and grab that. You actually bring it inside and do the work to find the person who owns it, even while using it as something that is your own. So I just wanted to bring this so you could see it kind of in a commentary and not just from my own words. Um, this is from the guide for the for the perplexed. You also brought this. I source. also brought this. Great. <laughs> that never happens. I never bring a source where Rabbi Shapiro is like, "Oh, I also brought that." It's always that he shares one that I already have, so I I feel validated. Um, I love so, this so much. Oh, good. Okay, so you can speak to it also. So it says here, uh, the guide for the perplexed is written by Maimonides. Uh, it's called Moran Nevuchim in, uh, in Hebrew. Okay. So the object of the law of restoring lost property to its owner, coming from the verses that we just looked at, is obvious. In the first instance, it is in itself a good feature in a person's character. Secondly, its benefit is mutual. For if a person does not return the lost property, this gets to a little bit of what Denise was saying earlier, of his fellow person, nobody will restore to him what he may lose. Just as those who do not honor their parents cannot expect to be honored by their children. So what this is saying here, I don't necessarily agree with the honor and honoring of your parents, but I think back in Maimonides' day, this is probably how that would have worked. I think in modern times, sometimes parent-children relationships are a little bit more complicated than that. Um, but the idea here that part of the reason that we do this is because if you lose an object one day, you want to imagine that because you've put this out in the world, that another person will also bring you your object back, right? It's like the pay it forward movement. If I am good to another person, regardless of if I know them, regardless of if I want to be nice to them, you hope that they will then 
you know, be nice back, whether it's to you or to the next person or what have you. Um, I was in a situation yesterday where uh, we were dealing with some not so happy people on our campus. And, um, and my assistant, uh, Susan said to me, how did you how did you deal with it? And I said, I was just kind, right? I just I allowed them to speak and I allowed them to kind of get it all out and vent it all out. And then I was just overly kind back and everybody calmed down. Right. And that doesn't always work. But I do think that in an instance where someone has lost something, if you have benefited from losing something and having someone find it and return it to you, you know, the amazing feeling of someone saying, oh, I found your credit card. Here it is, even after you canceled it. Uh, and knowing that that is something that that is possible in this world, as opposed to imagining that someone has my credit card and is using it to buy whatever the heck they want, which is why you cancel a credit card, right? That's a, that's a negative way of thinking about how people would deal with a lost object. This would be a positive way of imagining, I don't have to cancel it, someone will bring it back to me. Also not realistic at all times, but, um, but a, a much more optimistic way of thinking about it. Do you wanna say anything on this, Jackie, or can I go to another text? Um, yeah, I have two, I have two thoughts on it. Yeah. So first I, I enjoy that he brings these two ideas that are sort of different and he smushes them together. I think they're two in some way, two different things. I appreciate the first one. I think they, they do go together. I think, especially lately, I've had a lot of conversations around people with people around is Judaism moral and isn't meant to make us like good people or better people or that. And like, sometimes like the laws are just laws and sometimes they're actually meant for the greater good. And so I think, I think it's interesting that he brings out that this law is making, making that, making you who follows this a better person and a better citizen of the world. But I guess, as I say this, I realize they do go together. And the second one, I hear you on paying it forward, but it also, I think just makes for a better, more lawful, more, more wholesome society yeah. That we, we, no one will restore, no one's going to do what he did because we don't live in this world where this is an expectation. And I think this brings sort of order into the chaos of this world that it's that direct. If I return your object, you'll return my object. There's mm-hmm. a direct tip for Tad. And there's also, you create this world where when you lose things, someone's going to bring it. It may not be a direct, I lost like I lost something and someone brought it back to me. So like next time I find something lost, I'll think about it, but just really that we all buy into this collective way that we live our lives. And this is one of those places where there's an opportunity to do that. Beautiful. Yeah. Again, I think that's, that is the optimistic, beautiful way of thinking about this. And sometimes that feels realistic and sometimes it doesn't, right? This morning when I couldn't find my credit card, I didn't think to myself, wow, humanity is really wonderful usually. So I'm just going to let my credit card float out there. I checked the balance on my credit card immediately and was like, great, don't know where it is, going to cancel it, right? And that's not because I think all people are bad, but I assume that if someone finds a credit card that why not put it to use, right? Uh, Because they don't know me. So why not? 
So I, I totally hear you. And I, I wish that at more times in my life, I imagine that that was real. Um, okay. I also think yeah. losing a, losing an ox or losing a scroll or losing a coffee mug is very different than losing a credit card. Like I also want to name that like the stakes are very different. Like yeah. you didn't lose your coffee mug that like says, says RRS on it. And like, you know, be like, oh, I guess I have to buy a new one right now. But I don't have a coffee mug that says RRS on it. So you know, if anybody, if anybody's very interested in in a coffee mug with RRS on it, um, okay. Uh, so this actually don't I don't have a mug with my name on it. Period. I don't think. <laughs> um, I okay. brought this. Also, we can't. We clearly can't do this together. <laughs> um, oh, you did bring this. Yeah, of course I do. Because I also really, I was thinking about this as you were reading the last one. You made some comment at some point, and I was like, "Oh, that's awesome, a great awesome. text." Um, okay, do you want to do it then? You go. You start. Okay. Um, so one, I need. I might need you to scroll a little bit. One is forbidden to ignore lost objects, but has to pick them up and make every effort to locate the owner for a simple reason. If the Torah already displays such concern about the restoring of mere property to its owner, how much more concern does it feel about saving the soul of a person from becoming, quote, lost? In this respect, each of us is a guarantor. God reserves the option to exact payment from any one of us, just as the lender has the option to be repaid by the guarantor of the loan or by the debtor himself. This is the reason why the Torah selected the term Hashivta of Aveda rather than Hachazarat Aveda. Um, so it's it's using this, or I guess I can keep reading. The term is to remind us of our obligation to do everything in our power to see that a Jew who has strayed from the path of Torah should do tshuva. Uh, sorry, I just read Rabbi Shatz's chat halfway. I got distracted. It was moving. <laughs> we cannot ignore this obligation. The commandment is considered so important that public announcements about the lost object may even be made on the Sabbath. There's an additional aspect to the negative part of this commandment. Failure to return found objects to their owners impedes the arrival of the redemption. Thus far, the comment of Rabbi Menachem Habavli on this mitzvah. I probably didn't enter that last line. Um, I really loved, I love I love puns, which is just a fun thing to know about. But like Hebrew, English, whatever languages, I love playing with words. I really enjoy a good pun. And I love that this, I love what it's saying overall. But what I love about this is it's talking about Hashivat. So it's, it's, he sh- don't, don't tell anyone I, I'm butchering the grammar on, on, I'm butchering the vowels on this, but I can tell you the grammar. It's, it's, it's the causative. So it's, you cause to return the lost object instead of using return. It's 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 coming from the same the same root as teshuva. Instead of choser is to return as a general, like you returned. I don't know how to define the difference. Now I got on this thing, but there are two different words in Hebrew, and I love that it's playing with this of why is it using this word instead of this word, um, and what is the way in which it's returned, and then it expands it to people. I also. I love when things tell us we're responsible for one another and we're all, we're all here on this path and this journey to help each other. And what are the ways that we can help bring each other back into whatever it is. This is specifically talking about someone who's like off the derech, but I think it applies in other ways. Like what are the ways when someone's straying from whatever it is, whatever they've set out to do, how do we, how do we pull people back in and how do we, how do we help them 
How do we help them return to whatever it is they're attempting to do in their lives and be that support and that guarantor for them? I, it's so interesting. I uh, very often when Rabbi Shapiro and I, by the way, what Jackie was referring to, for those of you who are not on the chat, that the call that I just got was that they found my credit card. So I'm really glad that I canceled it. Um, awesome. So I, uh, this piece of this text for me, one of the reasons that I thought it was so interesting is that I think it also, and I, I won't read it again, obviously, but um, I think that we, we are very aware of this piece right here. The term is to remind us of our obligation to do everything in our power to see that a Jew who has strayed from the path of Torah should do tshuva, right? That anything that you lose, whether it's yourself or your tradition or your objects, that there's a way of returning. There's a way of returning to, to a sense of you, right? The person that you were when you had that talis or uh, with a new talis, right? This, this, is, this is not necessarily imagining that that return has happened with a physical object, but that you yourself can actually do that returning, do that, um, that coming full circle. And I just thought it was specifically interesting in the, the part of our season that we are in right now of Elul, right? Thinking about what does tshuva mean? It doesn't always mean picking up all the pieces that you dropped. It sometimes just means figuring out how to return to the things that work, right? So the things that you've dropped, you can, you can let go to a certain extent. You can yeush them, right? You can let them go. But the fact that that you have this ability to return, um, and it says here we cannot ignore this obligation, right? They're talking about returning objects as the obligation, but I think that chuva is also an obligation that we need to return to ourselves to figure out exactly who we want to be. And next year, you're going to do it again. So if some pieces get dropped by the wayside, you're going to have another opportunity to return. Um, so I, I loved I loved the fact that I could relate this not just to stuff, but also to self. And what does it mean to to lose pieces of yourself that I know, because I've had conversations with people in our own community, has felt like a real challenge during COVID, right? Where is my seat? Who is my community? I've lost myself in X, right? It doesn't, doesn't matter what that thing is, that people have lost themselves. That's a phrase that people have used. And what does that mean? And how do you return yourself to the before the before lost times um, of, of you? Uh, any thoughts on everything that we've done? We, we've talked a lot more than Rabbi Shapiro and I usually do through all these texts. So any thoughts that you want to share, any questions that you have, we can go a few, a few more minutes here. Yeah, yeah Joanna. I just want to share that I was at um, Rabbi Klickfeld's Hilchot Teshuva class this yeah. morning. And there were a lot of overlapping ideas between this morning and now. So to that idea of the connection between shuv of um, a lost object and doing teshuva, yeah. quite fascinating that both of these are happening on the same day. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I had no idea what he was going to teach, but again, I think there is that overlap. Maybe you'll even find it next week, right? There is that overlap to this topic in so many kind of intricate ways that you might not have thought of the connection had we not done this topic in this class, but that it will be brought up in terms of just what chuva is in general, um, as a means to, to the spiritual experience that you have during Tishrei. Yeah, Ryan. And I'm glad that Rabbi Klegfeld and I, even thousands of miles away, can be on the same page. <laughs> so uh, not a fully formed thought on this, but, you know, I'm thinking about the parallels, uh, you know, between this verse and like the broader, a broader arc, I should say, of the Torah of the redemption yep. of the Jewish people and the return to the land of Israel that was lost from them. Yeah. Um, but then I, I struggle because, you know, this verse is in the context of what do you do when you take the land of others? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I kind of ask, like, how do we reinterpret that in, in the world of, you know, 2021, mm-hmm. when we're so much more tolerant of, of fellow nation states and think like this, this doesn't just apply to, uh, yeah. you know, the, the redemption of the Jewish people and you know, taking our land, but in respect towards others and when they've lost their way of their culture and helping them. Yeah, it's a very powerful question and one that is unfortunately extremely timely also in terms of how we are dealing with and how we are watching what's going on in Afghanistan, right? There's there's so much richness in what you just said to to watching that experience and thinking about how can we help these people return? How can we help them feel like they're coming to um to a wholeness, even if it's not returning them to exactly the homes that they would wish or the cultures that they wish or the place that they call um call home but um yeah I have to think about that question I mean I think Rabbi Shapiro and I for the past few weeks have talked a lot about the destruction of other people's idols or other people's um lands right and what does that mean for us as a people and I think what you're what you're getting at here is is an even deeper question of are we then avoiding the question of how to help return right? How to help people return to those lands, um, even if it means in generations afterwards. It's a really profound question. I also know we didn't, we didn't end up coming back to it because at the beginning you asked about, about like, what does this mean, this closeness? There are definitely other commentators and I had thought I brought it, but I didn't about why does it use the phrase like, like fellow and like, does this apply to everyone? And, and it connects in another place, the verse right after, which we didn't bring talks also about fellow, but connects it to another place in Torah that it says, even your enemy. So it does, these rules definitely do have some, some flowiness in who they apply to. And there's a really good chance. I would say that it applies to people that you would not consider your fellow. Yeah. It's a beautiful point. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.